Hello and welcome to Connecting the Pieces, an Eastern Sector Development Team podcast focused on connecting, supporting and promoting good diversity, wellness and reablement approaches. We'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people as the traditional owners of the land where this podcast is recorded and to pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening today. We've been on a little bit of a break, so we're really pleased to be back here and presenting the last episode of our diversity series. And of course, in this current series, we've been exploring the meaning of diversity and the importance of knowing your community, which are two really important factors that need to be addressed to enable equitable access for consumers So how does diversity need to be considered once a person gains access to a service? And how are these diversity needs being considered within a service delivery model and approaches? So in this episode, Dale and I are going to explore the value of celebrating diversity and discuss the different ways in which service delivery should and can take into account people's diversity. So Dale, welcome, and I'd like to start off by asking you about this idea of celebrating diversity. What does it mean and how does it differ to accepting or tolerating diversity? Thanks, Lisa, and it's great to be back and doing another podcast. I think this is a really important topic to discuss and get into, and often people use words like tolerance and acceptance and think that they're inclusive and they're being inclusive by using that language. But if we break it down and think about it a little bit, you might tolerate a baby crying on a plane, but it's not something that you welcome. It's not something that you're glad is there. And that's not what we want for people coming into our service. We don't want them to be tolerated. Similar acceptance is often thought of by people as being something that is a positive thing. But there's a level of imbalance when it comes to power around acceptance. So if, for instance, I was to say to you, I accept you, Lisa, as a woman, and, you know, I have got no problems with that. It's not really the type of environment or the type of setup that we're wanting to establish. It's me saying that I think that there's something worth or needing to be accepted in you. Whereas actually what we want is people to be welcomed, to be celebrated and to feel that they belong. And that's really why I think we want to celebrate diversity rather than tolerate it or accept it. That's great advice. Thanks, Dale. But what about those who say, we don't actually celebrate the fact that someone's living with dementia, for example, or that someone's life experience has involved living in a government institution. What would you say in response to that? I think it's a really great point that you make there. And what we want to make sure is that we're never ignoring, mitigating or trivialising any experiences, any difficulty or trauma or an illness that someone's living through or or has lived through. These experiences will inform some of the preferences that people have in how they want us to engage with them or maybe how they don't want us to engage with them. And 
there'll probably be information within these experiences around the type of support that they want and that they need. So it's not about ignoring or celebrating trauma, for instance, but understanding from them and those individuals close to them what they like to celebrate about themselves and their lives, what is good in their life or what's been their achievements, what have they been able to do and what are they still able to do. For instance, people living with dementia can still and do still have meaningful lives and it's our role in working with them to help fulfil that. Another example, a person who has lived in a government institution as a child, now we wouldn't expect them to celebrate that fact. We know that there's a history of abuse and neglect that went with living in those environments, but they may take great strength and feel resilient because they were able to survive those environments. Equally, if they have specific needs or preferences around the type of care that they receive, who delivers their care, or how that care is delivered, then it's our job to not just accept or tolerate these requests, needs, preferences, but we want to embrace and support these requirements because it's inherently connected to them, their diversity, what they've been through and what's important to them. Thanks, Dale. I think you make some really important points there and particularly important for service providers who are seeking to create environments where all clients feel welcome and safe. So if we kind of looking at you know, providing safe and comfortable environments. How do we let people know that we are welcoming, supportive, and that we celebrate who they are, their differences, and their diversity? Yeah, really important question and points to cover off there because it's one thing for us to think that we're doing it, but we do have a responsibility to communicate that to our potential clients and our clients already in our service. Tell your clients what your organization is about and what your commitment is to them. Don't be vague, be really specific and make it meaningful to them. How powerful is it to tell a client that you are there to support them, that you respect them? And if at any time the service or the care that they're receiving doesn't measure up, that they have an avenue to come and report it, provide feedback, and that that organisation will make the necessary changes. Thanks, Dale. That's sort of great general advice that organisations can use to create welcoming and supportive environments. It's not uncommon these days to see flags or pronouns and symbols on websites and email addresses. And no doubt many of our listeners would have been involved in events where there's an acknowledgement to country, for example. So how do these types of acknowledgements contribute to good diversity practice? These are really important initiatives, and I think it's good that we're having a conversation about them because sometimes they can be used to great effect and sometimes they don't have the desired impact because some of the behind the scenes work needed hasn't really taken place. 
if you are just putting up a rainbow flag or an Aboriginal flag, that's not enough. That really should be the last step in the process, not the first step. So, Dale, if they're the last steps, what would you need to do in order to be comfortable for an organisation to share those symbols as part of their commitment as a welcoming organisation? The flags and symbols are meant to demonstrate that you're welcoming and that you can deliver inclusive care, as you've suggested, Lisa. It's therefore really important that you have training for your staff around understanding the history of the communities represented on the flags. The organisation needs to communicate why the flags are being displayed, what you hope to achieve from it, and what messages you're trying to send to those communities. You also have to be prepared to deal with any negative responses that you may receive. And it's really important to support frontline staff because they can often be the ones who receive questions or comments from the public or sometimes even other staff members. So ensuring that they're able to respond to any questions or potential conflict is really important that they're protected in this process as well. So Dale, what about those individuals who may be more advanced in their practice than, say, where the organisation is at? Can they be doing anything to demonstrate that they personally provide safe, welcome and inclusive service? Or do they need to wait for the organisation to catch up? Even if your organisation isn't maybe at the level of inclusivity as you know your personalised care and service delivery is, there's still a lot that you can do. So if you have a good understanding and have been through training about different communities and the barriers and histories that they've experienced, and you want to visibly display that you are personally welcoming, safe and inclusive, it can be a really positive message to have those symbols or flags on your lanyard or on your email signatures or even identifying your pronouns. But again, you need to be ready to explain why you're wearing the badge, the lanyard, the flag. And above all else, please do not let flags, artworks or symbols that really define these communities and are really important to them turn into something that's shallow or superficial. If we're wearing them, wear them with value and with purpose. Thanks, Dale. So I think that all services want to deliver a quality service and there has been lots of work over many years, you know, to embed some of these welcoming approaches that enable people to be at the centre of care that's being provided by services. But we also know in reality that people do experience services differently. And I think the advice that you've been providing really speaks to the importance of applying a diversity lens in all that we do. So I just wanted to ask you about applying a diversity lens within processes where clients are being welcomed into a service. What might that actually look like for individual clients? Thanks for that, Lisa. I imagine each organisation will have their own process, but for most it would include meeting with the person for an assessment, understanding who they are, what's important to them, and what they want to get out of that service. 
and then using this information to develop goals and create a care plan. Now, through each of these steps, we want to apply a diversity lens. To do that, we need to be conscious to the fact that the questions we ask and the information provided by our clients all feeds in to understanding the client's diversity, their preferences and needs. Therefore, it's important that our questions aren't loaded with assumptions that could make someone feel judged or unsafe about answering truthfully. I think the other part of applying a diversity lens to this process is piecing together the diversity information so that you get a well-rounded picture of the person. This will help you to understand what motivates them, what they want to be able to do or change, and will ensure that you can develop meaningful goals and care plans actually resonate with the client. Thanks, Dale. We know that that initial meeting through service-specific assessment and care planning is so important because it shapes the type of services that we'll be providing and also how those services will be provided. Are you able to give me any specific examples of how a person's diversity might influence the approach within assessment. For example, it might be someone who's accessing home support services. I think one of the things that we often hear from older people across all cultural backgrounds is that as they age, a sense of vulnerability can be experienced by some, but this can be exacerbated if you have a history of discrimination. We know that our home should be the place that we feel the safest, but having a stranger come into your home could be unsettling for some people. And if we think about it, I'm sure we've all gone into someone's house and thought, hmm, they do that in their home. Oh, I, I'd never do that. Or I can't believe someone came into my house and did that. So we want to try and avoid those types of scenarios and situations for our clients. And therefore, it's really important that we understand the specific preferences that they have or ask them to highlight the things in their home that are most important to them. Some of this might be connected to their culture. So understanding any cultural practices or preferences the client might have about someone coming into the home or what they do while they're in the home will be really important. People may also have very particular feelings or experiences around their property being touched or handled. The item could have sentimental value. So having permission from clients around what you can and can't do is really key. I think also if you notice the client appears uneasy or unhappy, have a chat and check if you're doing something that they're not comfortable with. Thanks, Dale. That gives people some real insights into some of the considerations when working with a client in their own home. What about other service types? For example, uh, an allied health service. I think allied health and working with clinicians is a really important consideration around diversity. If we take one example of maybe an older trans woman, now she might have pain in her joints or feet. For most people, this could be a really simple process of going to a service and seeking help. 
But because of a history where trans people have been treated badly, this woman might be reluctant or worried about the experience and how certain parts of her interaction with the service or the clinician could play out. For instance, she might have a deeper voice than other women have and could be worried about being misgendered or she could be misgendered over the phone. If, for instance, this was to happen, this first negative experience could raise concerns about her safety. The name on her Medicare card might be different to her other identity and how she lives now, and she may be worried or concerned about answering questions in relation to that if it's not really clear that the service is going to be welcoming and inclusive for trans people. All of these things she's potentially had to go through and think about before even going to see a clinician. I think another thing to consider in a clinical environment is they can resemble other settings that were potentially not safe. They may be triggering So thinking about the client journey, even from the reception to the clinician's room is really important. And this is true for all clients. So what we really want is for our clinicians to understand as much about each client and approach every person as an individual. Again, that's really great advice. Thanks so much, Dale. And I suppose just finally, I wanted to touch on social support. So we know that this is such an important service because it enables older people to connect socially. So how might considerations around diversity impact social support programs and in particular the way services are designed and delivered? Yeah, social support, as you're saying, Lisa, is so important. We know and we've really experienced over the last few years how important it is to connect and engage with people on a social level. And that can happen through a variety of different ways. I think sometimes we can think that people can only connect if they all speak the same language or if they have every interest exactly the same. But what we know is that there are a range of uh, interests and capabilities and skills that people have. So being able to find out all of these things will help match clients to the right group for those individuals. I think one of the things that you and I have talked about over many years is in social support groups, the clients really should be deciding, leading, and coming up with the types of activities, the types of interactions that they want to do. And giving people the opportunity and the voice to do that will be really important. Some real practical things that could be considered when thinking about some barriers that people may experience in social support groups. Food is often a really good thing that can bring people together and start conversation and form some connections. But it's really important to think about how we set up our environments and having smaller tables where people can sit down and have a conversation, maybe a lot more inclusive than just one long table. And one area that we absolutely cannot overlook and something that keeps social support alive and continuing is the volunteers. And using volunteers from a variety of different communities can help build rapport and bridge any gaps. 
So, Dale, you touched a little bit on this in your response, but I think it's interesting to explore it in a little more detail because we know that language is often identified as a barrier to accessing services. But we also know, for example, in social support, that it would be impossible for the sector to be able to deliver a specific social support group for every language type across Melbourne. So I'm just interested in your advice around delivering services for a cross-section of the community. How do we apply a diversity lens within that setting? Yeah, I think actually applying diversity lens in a setting where there's a variety of people from different cultural backgrounds and languages is possibly one of the most important things that we can do. Because if we don't, we know that people will be excluded and the things that are important to them will maybe be missed or we won't find a way to communicate with them. I just want to touch a little bit on the idea of language being a barrier and anyone who's listened to our podcast before will probably recall my my stance on barriers and I think what we really need to be clear on is that if we the provider can't communicate with our clients that barrier is ours and it's one that we need to overcome it's not a communication problem with the client or the clients and I completely agree you're you're right we're never going to have enough language specific groups that can cater for every language out there and it also shouldn't be the sole responsibility of language specific or called groups to deliver inclusive aged care services Where there are barriers in communication, as I was sort of saying in the last response, the organisation could try to find volunteers with the same language, encourage more clients from the same language group to attend. So if there's only one person, they don't feel isolated. There's also language cards that have been developed by the Centre for Cultural Diversity and Ageing. And these can be really helpful when we may not speak the same language as the clients who are using our service. A few years ago, we also did a project with a social support group, Uniting Care East Burwood, and they had been really successful in running social support groups that were completely multicultural. There were people from a range of different cultural and language backgrounds. And on our website, we've got a resource that showed what they did to ensure that the groups were inclusive. And that looks at everything from the activities that you put on to the volunteers that you use. So I really encourage everyone to not see language as a barrier that can't be overcome. Thanks, Dale. The Building Culturally Inclusive Social Support Groups resource is a really great one. And we really encourage listeners to access that via our website at www.esdt.com.au. So, Dale, just to finish up, are there any final tips or pieces of advice about what service providers can be doing to make it explicit that we welcome, celebrate and support different diversity groups? I think we've gone through a lot, but if I was to, I guess, summarise, I think it's really important that you communicate that you're inclusive, that you're welcoming in everything that you do. And this goes from 
your flyers, your websites, the conversations that your staff have with clients, with potential clients. And even when they talk about the organization to their friends, their families and others, it's really key that we let clients know what they can expect and how they can get support if things don't measure up. I think sometimes we can make assumptions that because we want to be inclusive, we are. But the only way we're going to know how we're doing is by asking people. Finally, and maybe most importantly, don't be afraid to make changes. Some of them may seem difficult, and they might be difficult in some ways. But if we're driven by delivering the best outcomes for the client, then we should feel confident we're doing it for the right reason. Great advice. Thanks, Dale. I'm sure our listeners today will value the advice that you've been able to share. So thank you so much. And I'd like to thank you for listening. You can access the Building Culturally Inclusive Social Support Group resource on the Easter Sector Development Team at www.esdt.com.au along with a range of other diversity and wellness videos and, of course, other episodes of this podcast. The Easter Sector Development Team is supported by the Australian Government Department of Health. And although funding has been provided by the Australian Government, the material and comments made do not necessarily reflect the views or the policies of the Australian Government. 